Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm excited that we're starting a new sermon series this morning. No more R's for a long time. Um, We have a long passage, and we're going to work through the whole thing. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, or it's on the back of your bulletin here if you have that. Um, So we'll go straight through the whole thing. I won't read it at the top, but I'm going to pray, and we'll get rolling. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and that we can know you. There's no greater gift than that. There's nothing more that we can ever boast in than that we know you and that you know us. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to learn from it today. Help us to learn what you're saying to us today for us to do today. And we pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. So, important question. How many of you have watched the show Lost? Okay, so probably a little less than half. Of those of you who watched Lost, how many of you watched it when it originally aired? Okay, all right. So, I got to be honest, I was never really that into TV until Lost came along. And there was something thrilling about watching it when it was actually on TV because every episode ended in a cliffhanger. And so me and my lost friends every week would discuss the clues and the conversations and try to think three episodes back to what he had said or what they had found. And you could just never guess what was coming next. But the end of season one ended on the cliffhanger of all cliffhangers. And I'm going to be honest, I'm going to spoil some of Lost for you. Uh, But I don't feel that bad about it because you've had 15 years to catch up on it. (laughs) So the premise of Lost basically is a plane crashes and the survivors of the crash find themselves on this mysterious island. They don't know where they are, and they keep finding things that are weird, things that would seem like to signify that there are other people on the island or there had been other people on the island. <clears throat> and one of the things that they find is this hatch that goes down into the ground, and it's got this steel door on it that's locked, and it has quarantine stenciled on it. So naturally, when you find a door that's locked and says quarantine, you want to get that thing open, Right? So at the very end of the first season, they managed to blow the door off of this thing, and the episode ends with them peering into this deep, dark hole with a broken ladder, and then lost. And you're like, what? That's literally what my friends and I would say at the end of every episode. We'd go, what? And then we're left for four months discussing what did it mean? I don't know. Let's think about the flashbacks. Let's think about the conversations. What did they find? What does quarantine mean? I don't know. Well, the beginning of season two, you find out what is in that hatch, what's at the bottom of that ladder. And there's no way anyone could have guessed it. Because what's at the bottom of that ladder behind that steel door that says quarantine 
is a really nice Scottish man named Desmond who's listening to records and making a smoothie. I'm not kidding. It is a guy named Desmond making a smoothie. I did not see that coming. That's going to be our theme this morning. I did not see that coming. That's why I named the sermon. I did not see that coming. And you have to say it that way too. But uh, so I'm going to make a left turn of a transition here, but just to soften it. Fun fact, the guy who plays Desmond in Lost had previously played Jesus in a film adaptation of the Gospel of John. So in a way, (laughs) when they blew the door off the hatch, they found Jesus. But so. If you think about when the real Jesus, not, not fictional movie Jesus, but the real Jesus, when he enters the scene, the Jews who were God's chosen people had been waiting for God to send them a savior and a king for over 400 years. But when the king showed up, no one saw him coming because he wasn't what they expected. We're starting a new sermon series on the gospel of Mark. We cleverly titled it The Gospel of Mark. Um, But we're going to be spending uh, the next several months studying Mark as a church. And because of that, I want to, before I dive into our passage this morning, give you some kind of like introductory material on who Mark is and a few things about the Gospel of Mark. So a good question to ask up front is, who is Mark, right? That's a great question. And I think we've got a, a picture of Mark for you. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe we don't. Well, we don't actually know what Mark looks like, but I managed to find uh, a painting of Mark that looks a lot like me, so that's why I picked that one. Oh, there it is. Yeah. I mean, that looks like me, right? It looks, it looks a lot more like me than the, than the old dudes with long beards. Um, and we, of course, have no idea what Mark looked like, but Mark was called John Mark. A few times in Acts, he's just called John, which is a little bit confusing because there are two other famous Johns in the New Testament. Um, Sometimes he's just called Mark. But the important thing to know is St. Mark, Mark, uh, he was a missionary with the Apostle Paul and with Barnabas, and he was actually the cousin of Barnabas. And in Philemon, Paul calls Mark a fellow worker, and he was also close to Peter. Peter in 1 Peter 5.13, calls Mark my son, which may even mean that Peter had led Mark to the Lord himself because he saw him as like a spiritual son. But regardless, Mark spent a lot of time with Peter when he was in Rome. And in the year 135 AD, and I want you to think about that. Uh, Chuck was just talking about Irenaeus, how he was only like two generations removed from Jesus. About the same is what I, is, I'm about to tell you about a guy named Papias of Hierapolis. You've all heard of him, right? Papias. Um, 135 AD, Papias of Hierapolis wrote about Mark. And I've got a picture of him too. Do we have the picture of Papias? Yeah, see, not nearly as handsome as Mark. Um, but Papias was the bishop of the church in Hierapolis, which was in modern-day Turkey. And Papias wrote a five-volume book called The Exposition of the Sayings of the Lord. And this is what Papias wrote about Mark. The presbyter used to say this, 
Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. So Papias is saying basically that Mark was recording Peter's eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, which I think is incredible. And it gets even cooler. If you notice, it starts, the presbyter used to say this. So presbyter, that's actually where we get our denomination from, Presbyterian, and presbyter means elder. So presbyter would have been elder or overseer of the church. The presbyter that Papias is talking about is John, as in the apostle John. So he's saying, the apostle John used to say this. So we can be pretty certain that Mark was close to Peter, and Mark's gospel is probably Peter's accounts of what happened. So that's who Mark was, and I'll tell you a little bit about the gospel of Mark. Even though Mark is the second gospel in our Bible, it was the first gospel written. And Mark probably wrote his gospel in Rome, and he was probably writing to the Roman church and the churches surrounding. And he probably was not thinking of a Jewish audience when he wrote, because he will mention a Jewish custom, and then he'll kind of explain it. And if you were writing to Jews, there'd be no reason for him to explain what the day of preparation meant. And also, uh, this can get confusing, but so they were in the Roman Empire, and the official language was Greek. So Mark is writing in Greek, but Jews spoke Aramaic. And whenever Mark uses an Aramaic word, he'll translate it. So for example, you might know that um, the place where Jesus was crucified is called Golgotha. And when Mark says that, he says, in, in our Bibles, it says in parentheses, that means place of the skull. So he's translating Aramaic for people. So if they were Jews, they would have already known what that meant. So all I'm getting at is probably he had a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience in mind. So Mark is often called the gospel of action because it's mostly action. It has far less of Jesus preaching than the other gospels do. Um, it's actually the shortest gospel too. So if you ever have trouble remembering that, just think Mark is short. The gospel of Mark is short. You got it. <clears throat> um, but it's short because it's almost all action. There's very little commentary. There are very few details. And Mark uses the word immediately a lot. In Greek, it's the word euthus. And Mark uses it 41 times in his gospel. And uh, as you read commentaries on it, some people attach a lot of significance to this, like he was making some theological statement. I honestly think it's just the way Mark told stories. Um, when I was in college, my friends used to make fun of me because every time I would tell a story, I would start with one time, so, so like, I'd be like, one time I ate spaghetti out of a shoe or, you know, whatever dumb story I was telling. It always started one time. But if you think about it, if you were reading that 2,000 years later, you might think, oh, there must be something significant here. He's saying this event only occurred once. No, that's just kind of how I tell the story. And I think that's how it is for Mark, too, using immediately. And if I'm right about Mark saying immediately, just because that's how he told stories, it is significant, and I think it's significant because when human writers wrote the inspired word of God through the Holy Spirit, God didn't mute their personalities. 
He didn't mute their artistic sensibilities or their style or their voice. And it's the same with us. When we become Christians, we don't become little like Jesus robots who all look the same and act the same. We actually become more fully who we are. And the more sanctified in Jesus we are, the more we realize how loved we are by God, we kind of stop caring as much what people think about us. And it frees us up to just be who we are, right? So when Mark's writing, we're getting pure Mark. It's the inspired word of God in the style of Mark. And he is telling the best story that has ever been told in a way that only he can tell. And he's the first person to ever write this down that we know of. And this is how it starts. We're going to jump into it now. Mark 1.1 begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark gives us one sentence up front that tells us who he believes Jesus is. And he uses the term Christ. And Christ means anointed one. It's a term of royalty that applies to the Messiah. The Messiah is God's anointed king. But then the rest of the book, you're never going to hear that again because it's left for us to ask who we think Jesus is. Mark never comes out and tells us who Jesus is. Rather, he shows us who Jesus is through Jesus' actions and through other people's reactions to him. Mark largely portrays his audience, even the disciples, as being kind of slow to grasp who he is. And in our passage this morning, verse 11 says, A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. But Mark doesn't tell us who the voice is. And so we're left asking, whose son is this? In Mark 4, Jesus' own disciples, after, after Jesus has calmed the sea, his own disciples say, who then is this? In Mark 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he asks them, who are people saying that I am? And they give him a bunch of different answers. Some of them are weird. And he never says, oh, that one's right, that one's wrong, that one's wrong. And then he says, well, who do you think that I am? And Peter, the apostle Peter, as in Mark's mentor, Peter, says, you are the Christ. But Jesus neither confirms or denies it. Mark could have said, and Peter was correct. But that's not how Mark rolls. He wants us to keep asking the question, who is this man? And since the gospel of Mark is the gospel of action, Mark uses Jesus' actions to tell us who he is. In fact, it's not until after Jesus has died and the temple curtain was torn that a Roman centurion, not a devout Jew, not one of the disciples, but one of the people who was seen as the enemy of the Jews, a Roman centurion recognizes and says, truly, this man was the son of God. So over these next few months, as we explore the gospel of Mark together, I want you to try to look at it with fresh eyes and see how Mark slowly reveals to us through, uh, through his actions and through people's reactions who Jesus is. So this story begins for us in verses two and three with a prophecy. And this is what it says. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, 
Make his paths straight. What's interesting about this is it's not actually a quote from Isaiah. It's a combination of quotes from Isaiah and Malachi. The first reference comes from Malachi 3.1, and I've got that for you. This is what it says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So that's the first part. That's pretty much what Mark is saying. But then it goes on to say, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. See, if you know that reference and you know the rest of what it says, you realize Mark's giving us a huge clue as to who this man is. God himself is speaking through the prophet Malachi. And Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament. Not just like the last one you find in the book, but he was the last one to prophesy. And Malachi ends with a long sentence that starts this way. I want you to listen to this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And this Elijah that he's talking about is the messenger who will prepare the way. It's the same messenger that he's talking about in the other prophecy. And that's the last word that the Jews have heard from God for 430 years. So doesn't it make sense that when Mark begins his gospel, he picks up where the story left off? If you watch Lost, you know that every episode starts with previously on Lost, and then it'll kind of like recap. That's what Mark is doing here. He's like previously in the Old Testament prophecies. That wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't have said that. I was dumb. Uh, Anyway, okay. So Mark's second reference comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Mark is quoting Isaiah The book of Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel because it tells us so much about who Jesus was going to be, including the fact that he was going to suffer and bear our sins. But that was the part of the prophecy that people weren't really paying attention to. But here's the point. Mark quotes two prophecies, but they aren't specifically about the Lord. They're about the messenger who comes before the Lord. And then in the next verse... Mark introduces the messenger, John the Baptist. And here's what it says, starting in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So just a, I probably should have had a map or something, but just if you can picture it, there's like, Mm, here's Israel, okay? And there's like a big lake here. And then there's a little river that feeds into that lake. That's the Jordan River. And at the top, right where the river meets, that's about where 
he was baptizing people. Jerusalem's over here. I think I'm doing that from your perspective. Yeah, Jerusalem, and this whole region is called Judea. Does that kind of make sense? I thought that might just help you picture it a little better. Should have had a map. Uh, Anyway, so John comes baptizing people, and that can be confusing for us to understand since baptism is something that we normally associate with Christianity, but Christianity didn't exist yet. Does anybody else find that like weird and perplexing? If you don't, that's fine. You can just tune me out for the next couple seconds. But here's what I want you to remember. John was the messenger preparing the way for the Lord, and he was doing this by calling people to repentance. He told them it wasn't just enough to be ethnically Jewish and assume that you're God's chosen people, even if your heart is far from God. John was preparing the way for the Lord by orienting people's hearts toward the Lord. And part of the way that God chose to do that was calling them to repent and be baptized. So John the Baptist was the Elijah, the messenger who was prophesied. If you think about it, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, check. Where is he? He's in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, check. He's telling people, someone mightier than I is coming. But everyone totally missed that he's a messenger. Even the people who were repenting and being baptized, they didn't really get that he was Elijah, that he was the messenger. And why? Because he's some weird joker wearing camel hair, eating locusts, and dunking people in the river. No one saw that coming. But you know why the camel hair and the leather belt is so significant? If you think about it, I just told you Mark hardly ever gives us details. And then here's this weird detail. It's significant because in 2 Kings, it tells us that the historical prophet Elijah, like the one you know from the Old Testament, wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And remember, Elijah is the name that Malachi gives to the messenger who would come prepare the way for the Lord. He's associating him with Elijah. And if it's a hang up for you that his name isn't Elijah, it's actually John, it may help you to know that Elijah simply means Yahweh is my God. And whose God was John's? It was Yahweh. So there's no problem there. But no one saw that kind of Elijah coming, so they missed it. When I was in third grade, I got cast to play Santa Claus in our Christmas program. And I was so excited that I came home and immediately told my mom, but I said, don't tell my dad and my brother. I want it to be a surprise for them. And then when it came the night of my Christmas program, my mom wasn't able to go. And so she sent the camera with my dad. She kept my secret, but she said, when you see Mark come on stage, make sure you take some pictures for me. Well, yep, you know where this is going. That whole program went by and my dad and my brother never saw Mark they were expecting something else. They weren't looking for a skinny kid in a Santa Claus suit. But when John the Baptist entered the stage, it was kind of the same way. I mean, the consequences were a little greater for missing John the Baptist, but it was, it was the same way. Even people who followed John the Baptist didn't see that he was a messenger. In chapter 9 of Mark, the disciples, who should kind of get it, right? But the disciples ask uh, Jesus, 
doesn't Elijah have to come before the Messiah? And Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. He's saying he came. And the point is this, if we have preconceived ideas about how God's going to work, we can miss him altogether. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about what it's going to be like when he returns. And it's going to be a day of rejoicing. It's going to be a day of making all things new, but it's also going to be a day of judgment. And he talks about how he's going to separate some people on his right and some people on his left. And I want you to hear what he says to the people on his left. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Friends, we encounter Jesus almost every single day but we miss him because he doesn't look like we expect him to look. I know that I am personally guilty of not caring for the least of these. So may the Lord open our eyes to see him in the homeless, in the stranger, in the sick, in the imprisoned. And may we minister to the least of these as if it were Christ himself. It's sobering, isn't it? Malachi and Isaiah tell us that the messenger comes before God. So since Mark has introduced us to the messenger, John the Baptist, we should expect God to come now, right? God should be the next person to enter the scene. But who does Mark introduce us to? Jesus. And this is how Jesus makes his appearance in verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So rather than God coming with a massive army, we get Jesus coming from Galilee and being baptized by John. And just for reference, Galilee is about 60 miles north of where John's baptizing. So it's a long journey to get there. So basically, God comes in the form of a man and a man who submits to the baptism of John and no one saw that coming. We have to ask the question, if Jesus was without sin, why did he need to be baptized? Have you guys wondered that? Again, it's kind of weird. Why did he need to be baptized? Because John said... It's a baptism of repentance. But Jesus was baptized as an act of righteousness for you and for me. When John the prophet called people to repent and be baptized, these were the very words of God. So it was a command. Jesus was baptized not because he needed to repent of sins, but so that he could be righteous in every way. 
The good news of the gospel is that all of Christ's righteousness and all of Christ's perfect obedience is credited to us if we just believe in him. So now when we're baptized, we aren't baptized into John's baptism. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the cool thing is we got to see that today with little Ellie and baby Eden. They were baptized into Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, he changed baptism forever. Continuing in verse 10, Mark says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately, there's that word immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. I don't know if there's a single person in this room who hasn't heard that story before, but I want to challenge you just for the next couple minutes to imagine that you haven't heard this story before and that you're there at the Jordan River. I'm going to ask you to do two things. This is important, okay? In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. It's the first thing. Second thing, don't fall asleep. You got it? All right, humor me and close your eyes, okay? We're going to do some guided imagery. I want you to imagine you're at the river and John's baptizing, like he always does because he's John the Baptist. And you're sitting at a distance watching him, taking in his words when he preaches. And people are coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem, lining up to hear John and to be baptized. And it's always cool when someone gets baptized because it's a special thing, but after a while, you get sort of used to it, the same way we get used to going to church. So your eyes start to wander, and you notice that in the line of people is a Galilean man who looks dusty and different from a lot of the people from Jerusalem. And you're watching the baptisms, but your eyes keep wandering back in the line to this Galilean And he inches forward, and when he finally is next in line and he's face-to-face with John, John hesitates to baptize him. There's some conversation between the two, but you aren't close enough to make it out. So you're wondering, what's the issue here? Does John know him? Who is this man? And then finally, John does baptize him. And when he does... It's like the sky is ripped apart. Or at least that's the best that you can describe it. And something that looks like a dove, but also unlike anything you've ever seen, lands on this man. And then you hear a voice, a loud, booming voice, like so loud you can feel it in your bones. But it's not a scary voice. It's a voice that sounds so familiar, but you can't quite place it. The voice says to the Galilean man, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And you're left thinking, what just happened? Can you imagine that? You can open your eyes now. Were you able to picture it? When it says that the heavens were being torn open, 
It harkens back to Isaiah 64, where Isaiah is pleading to God for salvation. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here, in this moment, Isaiah's prayers are being answered because God has come near at last. And when it says the spirit descended on Jesus, it harkens back to Isaiah 61. And I want you to listen to what it says. This won't be on the screen. I, I just want you to listen and imagine Jesus standing there at the water's edge, speaking this to you. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. I don't think we can fully grasp what happened on that day when Jesus was baptized. But I can tell you when all those Judeans saw this dusty Galilean step into the Jordan, no one saw that coming. No one imagined that the heavens would be ripped open and that the Holy Spirit would descend on this man like a dove. But following Jesus' baptism, we see Mark's word immediately again. Starting in verse 12 and 13, it says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So this is weird. Let's just be honest. If you hadn't heard this before, you'd be like, that's weird. What's going on here? It's like so much for celebrating that cool thing that just happened because immediately the spirit drives him into the wilderness with wild animals and he's there for 40 days, but it's incredibly significant. When God delivered Israel, his chosen people from slavery, he led them through the water. Jesus has just gone through the waters of baptism. And after Israel is led through the water, they are led into the wilderness. How long are they there? 40 years. After Jesus passes through the waters, he's led to the wilderness for 40 days. And the Israelites, when they're in the wilderness, they are tempted and they're tried. And how did they do? Not so good. Even Moses, the great prophet who gave us the Ten Commandments, sinned in the wilderness. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he was tempted, but he was without sin. Mark doesn't make that explicit here, but we get it from Matthew and Luke. And Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So once again, Jesus has done for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. He did what Israel was unable to do. So already Mark, without telling us, is showing us that Jesus is the true Israel. He resisted Satan in the wilderness, and he was going to overthrow him once and for all, but not like anyone would have expected. No one expected that God's anointed king would die. No one expected that the messenger, that the Elijah would die. But already here in verse 14, John the Baptist is arrested, which will lead to his death. 
Let's read the last two verses of this passage. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, the messenger's job is finished and now it's time for the king to come. And he did come, but he didn't come with a sword in his hand. He didn't come with the backing of a powerful nation or with a mob of revolutionaries. He came announcing a kingdom that is at hand. And rather than a call to arms, he issues a call to repentance. No one saw that coming. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah. And the Messiah was a royal figure that Israel was expecting to come and set up kingdom here on earth. And in the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome. And so most Jews are expecting that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans, did he? He was killed by the Romans. No one saw that coming. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news from the creator of the universe. His kingdom is at hand. And if you want to be part of it, what do you do? Jesus says nothing about crushing your enemies, nothing about taking land, nothing about overthrowing governments. Jesus also doesn't say anything about the kind of things that we can tend to turn God's kingdom into. Jesus doesn't say anything about your race, your gender, the kind of music that you like, the way that you vote. Jesus doesn't say anything about your bumpy past, your broken relationships, your history of addiction. To be part of this kingdom, Jesus says you do two things. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's good news, friends. That is the good news. To receive the righteousness of Christ to receive the very spirit of the living God, to be adopted into the holy royal family, to have eternal life, to be in the presence of the one who knows you and made you and loves you. All it takes is saying, Jesus is right. I can't do this. I'll have what he's having. Can it really be that simple? I believe that it is. And so, as we close, here's what that means for you today. Here's what it means for all of us. If you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I'm asking you, will you consider Jesus? And if there's anything at all that compels you about a man with all power and authority who could have done anything he wanted but came and lived just like us and lived a humble life and a lowly life and was despised by so many. And he did it so that he can care for the poor and the broken and the disenfranchised to take on the sins of the world. If that's compelling to you, Will you answer his call to repent and believe in the gospel of God? There's no other formula. My clever title for this sermon 
I did not see that coming. You have to say it like that, by the way. I called it that because no one saw John the Baptist being the messenger. And no one saw Jesus being the Messiah because God defied everyone's expectations. And so Christians, my brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you are a Christ follower, I want you to honestly ask yourself, what do people expect Christians to be like in my workplace, in school, in the media, in the neighborhood? What do they expect us to be like? Um, hypocrites, racist, shaming, judgmental, more concerned with politics than we are with our faith, more concerned with telling other people how they should live. Those are a few. What do people expect Christians to be like? Honestly examine your heart and ask yourself, is that what I'm like? And whatever the answer is, the good news is you don't have to live that way. There is a better way. My challenge to all of us is to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus and love people so well that it blows people's expectations of what the church is in America and what Christians are like in the Southeast. John the Baptist was a messenger to proclaim the coming of the King. And so am I, and so are you. God's doing a new thing. His kingdom is at hand, and we're all part of it. So in just a moment, after I pray, we're going to sing a new song. It's not super new, but it's new to Orangewood. And I want it to be kind of a rallying cry for us. And if you don't know the words, it's okay. I just want you to read them and take them in until you can sing it and mean it. Does that sound good? All right, let's pray. Holy God, thank you, thank you, thank you that you sent your son into the world. Thank you that even though John was not well-received by many, that even though your own son was not well-received by many, that we were enemies toward you, that you loved us so much, that you let your son die, that you let him receive the punishment that we deserve so that we may live with you forever. Lord, let that message never become old and stale to us. And I pray that it would burn in our souls in a way that lights the world and that we show people like what the kingdom is really like, what you are really like, and that we show people a different kind of Christ than the one they think they know. And we ask all of this in the holy, righteous, perfect name of Jesus. Amen.